Well, four people live in my house. My wife, Mel, my son, Maddox, my son, Wade, and myself. And we are a family. We are four individuals, and yet we are not merely four individuals. We are a family. Thus, we are one cohesive unit. You cannot take any four people and put them in a house together and call them a family. Neither can you take one member of my family from my house and put them in a different house and say that they're no longer part of my family. Even if that member were to live in a different house permanently. There is something that makes us four one. There are roughly 275,000 people living in Barbados. And we are one nation. We are 275,000 individuals, and yet we are not merely 275,000 individuals. We are one nation. Thus, we are one cohesive unit. There is something that makes us 275,000 people one. In contrast uh, to these two examples, it is possible to have a group of people that is not a cohesive unit. Uh, for example, there are at any given time apparently 500,000 people in the air flying in airplanes at any given time, apparently. Though that number is actually greater than the population of our nation, those 500,000 people in the air at any one time are not a nation, nor are they a family. They're just 500,000 assorted people. They're not a cohesive unit. One of the things that is clear in the passage before us, uh, verses 17 to 22 of Ephesians chapter 2, is that Christ is building a church, not merely saving individuals. Christ is saving individuals, of course. As John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Him, that is God's Son, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son. What you see from that verse is that we have to deal with God as individuals. You personally need to believe in the Son of God. You personally need to deal with God. You need to come and deal with God as an individual. And if you personally don't deal with God as an individual, you will not be saved. And so Christ is certainly saving individuals. God doesn't save in groups. God doesn't save somebody simply because his father and mother were or are Christians. God does not save a person simply because most of the people in her workplace are Christians or because most of her friends are Christians. You don't get saved by association. You don't get saved by belonging to a group. And so you as an individual certainly do need to deal with God as an individual. Christ certainly does save individuals. Individuals need to shift their confidence away from themselves 
toward Christ in terms of their standing before a holy God. Individuals have to come to the place where they recognize themselves to be sinners. And where they recognize that they themselves do not have sufficient merit to be accepted by God. That they themselves actually have demerit. The demerit of their sins which actually makes them guilty and deserving of God's condemnation rather than God's acceptance. And individuals need to turn toward Christ Jesus and look to Him in faith that He would save them. So, in this way, individuals certainly need to deal with Christ as individuals. And in this way, Christ certainly does save individuals. However, Christ is not merely saving individuals. He Himself said, I will build My church. I will build My church. Christ is building a cohesive, unified group comprised of individuals to be sure, but united. One people, a nation, a household, united by common features and a common structure, and united ultimately by virtue of our relationship, our shared relationship to Him. Christ is building a church, not just merely saving individuals. And to say that Christ is building a church and not merely saving individuals uh, uh, is to recognize that there is a distinction between Christ merely saving individuals and Christ building a church. Verse 19, look at the passage before us. Ephesians 2.19 uses two metaphors for the church. A nation and a household. When Paul says you in Ephesians 2.19, he's referring to ethnic Gentiles. That is, non-Jews. So the sense is, you Gentiles are no longer strangers with respect to the household. And you Gentiles are no longer aliens with respect to the nation. But now, you are fellow citizens in the nation and members of the household. In other words, when individuals are saved by Christ, they become part of a greater whole. That's what happens in the Gospel. When individuals are saved by Christ, they become a part of a greater whole. They enter into a new relationship, not only with God Himself, but also into a new relationship with God's people. Last year, to illustrate this point, last year, 2016, or even earlier this year, prior to June, if I had referred to Bajans, I would have had to refer to you or them. But since I received citizenship here in Barbados in June, I now refer to Bajans as us and we. My relationship has changed not only to the Crown and Parliament, but my relationship has changed to you. I am no longer here as an alien among you. I am no longer visiting on a passport. I now belong here. I'm now a fellow citizen of the nation of Barbados. Here's another illustration. We adopted our son Maddox 
before he was in our family, he was at one time literally a stranger to us and our household. There was a time when we did not know him and he did not know us. He lived somewhere else, but in due time, he became a member of our household. And now he belongs in our family. He has all the love and all the rights and all the privileges of a family member. Though we had no other children at the time when we adopted Maddox, his change of status inaugurated a relationship to Mel and I as adoptive parents and automatically it inaugurated a relationship between him and any potential future brothers or sisters of whom Wade is now one. I could not have entered into a relationship with the Crown and Parliament of Barbados without also entering into a relationship with its citizens. And Max could not have entered into a relationship with Mel and I as father and mother without also entering into a relationship with brothers and sisters who are also our children. And so it is clear from this passage's use of the metaphors of a nation and a household that Christ is not only saving individuals, but He is organizing those individuals into an aggregate whole. This is what we call the church. Though that terminology is not here at the end of chapter 2, it's in chapter 3. Paul uses that terminology, the church, in chapter 3, referring to the group of people that he describes at the end of chapter 2. And so that's explicit in Scripture. And so Christ is building a church. As he said, I will build my church. Christ is building his church. He is not merely saving individuals, but he is organizing those individuals into an aggregate whole. We know that not only from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 where he says as much, but we also see that from the logical relationship between Ephesians 2:17, look at your Bibles, and Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. The logical relationship is this. It is Christ's preaching of peace that forms the church and adds members to it. Look at the logical relationship. Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's a little bit of review in chapter 18. Or pardon me, in verse 18. It's reviewing what we discovered in the prior few verses. Jews and Gentiles have equal access to God through Christ. So it says, He came and preached peace to you who were far off, that is Gentiles, and you who were near, for through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, that's the connector, that's the logical connector. Christ preached peace, and so what happens as a result of Christ preaching peace, so then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the logical connection is, Christ preaches peace to Jews and Gentiles, and as a result, the church is formed and members are added to it. Now, what we see is that Christ is building His church through His Word. That's basically what I just told you. Christ is building His church through this proclamation of peace. That is how, that is the means by which Christ is building His church. Now, especially with the inclusion of the word came in verse 17, verse 17 contains a puzzling statement. Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Especially with that word came, it's a puzzling statement. Because the logical, the sense, pardon me, in the context of this statement is something like this. After Christ accomplished peace between Jews and Gentiles, and after Christ accomplished peace between Jews and Gentiles and God, after that, Christ came and preached peace to Jews and Gentiles. That's the logical flow of this passage. So the question that should arise in our minds is, when? Especially after His crucifixion and resurrection as the context seems to necessitate. When did Christ come and preach peace to the Gentiles? Paul's writing to the Ephesians. When did Christ come and preach peace to the Ephesian church? When did Christ come and preach peace in Ephesus? The end of Luke and the beginning of Acts are helpful to us here. Remember that both Luke and Acts were written by the same author. And by his own admission, they form a part one and a part two of the history of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and then the subsequent history of the early church. That's what Luke and Acts is. It's a history. Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and then the subsequent history of the early church. So Luke is part one and Acts is part two. So with this in mind... Notice that Luke chapter 24 and verse 36 describes one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances this way. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. This was in Jerusalem. It was primarily a Jewish group. And so we could see Jesus' announcement of peace to the Jews clearly enough in Scripture. Christ literally came after His resurrection and preached peace to the Jews in Jerusalem. That's explicit for us right in Scripture. But again, when did Christ come and preach peace to the Gentiles? When did Christ come to Ephesus and preach peace? Well, Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, which remember is just part 2, which comes after part 1 in the narrative. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 continues the post-resurrection narrative. And Luke says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, that is in the book of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the implication? In this second book, O Theophilus, I will deal with all that Jesus continues to do and to teach. The 
customary way of referring to the book that comes after John in our canon is the Acts of the Apostles, or as we say in shorthand, the Book of Acts, or Acts. But Luke's introduction implies that it might more properly be called the Acts of the Risen Christ through His Apostles. And incidentally, the titles that we have for our books are not inspired by God. They were added afterwards. So we're not, we're not tinkering with the doctrine of Scripture when we say something like that. In case anyone was wondering. But indeed, indeed, to think of the book of Acts as being the book of the Acts of the risen Christ through His apostles would actually be consistent with what we find back here in Ephesians chapter 2. Because Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. And so, Paul says both that it is Christ's preaching of peace that forms the church, and Paul says that it is the apostles and prophets who form the foundation of the church. These things may appear to be in tension or appear to be contradictory at first until we think about the manner in which the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church. They preached Christ and the peace that Christ accomplished. And it was the preaching of Christ and the preaching of the peace that Christ accomplished which formed the foundation of the church. And so saying that Christ preached peace to the Jews and Gentiles and the church sprang up, and to say that the apostles and prophets preached Christ and the peace that Christ accomplished, and then the church sprung up, is actually to say the same thing. And then to recognize further that by the definition of the office of apostle and by the definition of the office of prophet, it's actually saying the same thing to say that the apostles preached and that Christ preached. And that the prophets preached and that Christ preached. They're actually saying the exact same thing. And so there's great harmony here in this passage. Uh, again, this, um, the means by which Christ preached peace to the Gentiles is through the apostles and prophets who spoke His very word. Let me explain that a little bit further. What is an apostle? As I quoted from Sinclair Ferguson in the introduction to Ephesians way back in September, so I'll quote him at length again. Sinclair Ferguson says, The Greek word apostolos means a sent one. It was sometimes used in classical literature for a naval expedition, the commander of which might also be known as an apostolos. The authority of an apostle to speak and act was therefore dependent on the nature of the authority of his sender. That is why it is important to notice that the word is used in more than one way in the New Testament. First, it is used of Jesus himself. For example, Hebrews 3.1, as the Son whom God sent into the world. John chapter 3, verse 17. Secondly, it is used of the twelve whom Jesus called and trained to be part of the foundation of the church as in here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. 
And third, it is sometimes used of believers commissioned by their congregation for special service. In this sense, apostle and missionary mean basically the same. The former term is derived from the Greek, the latter from Latin, verbs meaning to send. Barnabas and Saul were both apostles in this sense, sent out by the church at Antioch. And I would, I would add, this is Sinclair Ferguson's words and not mine. And I don't, think, I don't think Ferguson would dispute me here. Saul was also an apostle of Christ Jesus, called in commission by Christ himself, with authority to speak and act on Christ's behalf. We see that taught explicitly in Scripture. But Barnabas is a clearer example of that last category, who's not an apostle of Jesus Christ per se, with authority to speak and act for Christ, but he's an apostle of the church at Antioch. So an apostle is basically one sent by another who has all the authority of the sender as he acts as a representative of the sender. So when someone claims to be an apostle, the question should arise in our minds, naturally, an apostle of whom? With whose authority does this person claim to speak and to act? Well, as we see... uh, by the way that the word is used in the New Testament, there is such a thing who, as those who are sent by a church to accomplish something in another place, and they have the authority of the sending church. We call them missionaries, which is derived from the Latin term, uh, missio, um, as opposed to the Greek term apostolos. Uh, but they both basically mean the same thing. So we don't have a problem with someone calling themselves a missionary. And neither should we have a problem with someone calling themselves an apostle in that sense. Right? But, if, but if, if people in that sense are an apostle, then I'm an apostle of the church in Toronto. Right? So you understand what we're saying. We're not saying, um, we're not making a grandiose claim to authority over several churches or, or one commission to speak and act with the authority of Christ himself or so on and so forth. We're simply saying that there are those who have authority to speak and act on behalf of the churches who sent them. Right? We might send messengers to a general assembly of churches in order to vote on matters that concern all the churches. That might be, we might call them messengers or missionaries or technically we might call them apostles. But we tend to stay away from such terms in our circles so as to avoid uh, ambiguity and confusion. Right? But that question should arise in our minds. On whose authority is this person speaking and acting? But what we see is that there were, there were um, 13, 13 apostles of Christ Jesus. Paul refers to himself as such in the beginning of Ephesians. And so we have the original 12, minus Judas, plus Matthias, who was added in Acts chapter 1, plus Paul. There have been 13, and only 13 incidentally, for the sake of clarity, who are, as Charles Hodge puts it, plenipotentiaries plenipotentiaries of Christ. That is, men whom he personally selected and sent out, invested with full authority to teach and rule in his name. Catch that. Those 13 apostles had authority to teach and to rule in Christ's name. Which means that as they went to Ephesus and preached peace, Christ, as it were, went to Ephesus and preached peace. It is this type of apostle that's in view in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. And we can see from the nature of this type of apostleship that it is right and proper to speak of Christ preaching peace 
to those who were near and to those who were far off through these men as they preached, thereby laying the foundation of the church. Yet Christ's preaching wasn't confined to those 13 apostles. There were also prophets through whom Christ preached peace to those who were near and those who were far off. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, which is found in which testament? The Old Testament or the New Testament? 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. The New Testament. It is a New Testament prophet, uh, passage describing to us prophecy, the nature of prophecy in the New Testament. Right? 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried away, carried along, pardon me, by the Holy Spirit. The nature of prophecy. Catch this. The nature of prophecy is speaking the very words of God. Old Testament and New Testament. Peter tells us himself, when he speaks about what prophecy is, he's indicating to us the very nature of prophecy. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He, he does a couple things in that section. He equates prophecy and scripture, and he equates Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Okay? So, Peter recognizes, another way of saying that, no distinction between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Peter, therefore, also recognizes no distinction between infallible prophecy and fallible prophecy. Which means that as the New Testament prophets all over the Roman Empire and beyond as the Word of God spread, New Testament prophets were speaking the very words of God. And New Testament prophets the sum and substance of their message then was also the same sum and substance of the apostles' message. As, as Paul sums it up, we preach Christ Jesus and Him crucified. The sum and substance of the message, the center of the message, the defining feature of the message was Christ and the peace that He accomplished. So there is unity between the apostles and the prophets. Incidentally, the way that you were to weigh whether someone was a true prophet or a false prophet is whether their message was consistent with the apostles. If their message deviated from the apostles, they were to be shunned as a false prophet. And so there's harmony between the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament, and they both are speaking the very words of Christ, And so there is harmony between them and Christ. And so through the apostles and the prophets, Christ preached peace to those who are far off, Gentiles, 
Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, Galatia, all of these New Testament churches that we read about, right? Laodicea, Thyatira, all these churches that are mentioned in the New Testament. Christ preached peace in those places by the apostles and the prophets as they went with His full authority in the power of His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, speaking the very words of God. And as Christ preached peace through those apostles and the prophets, the foundation of the church was laid. The church was formed. As the nature of the church was described, as uh, the essence of the church was described, as the destiny of the church, the hope of the church, the inheritance of the church was described, and as people were invited to join it, an entity was formed. It was formed of individuals who responded to that preaching of peace, but it was not merely a bunch of random individuals who just got saved and then stayed as random individuals. They were built together, the passage in front of us in Ephesians chapter 2 says. They were built together into a structure, joined not only to Christ the cornerstone, joined not only to the apostles and the prophets who uh, next to the cornerstone were foundational to the church, but they were joined also to one another. The church was formed and men and women and boys and girls were added to it as Christ preached peace to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And so Christ built His church through His Word, through this proclamation of peace. Himself as the peace, as verse, chapter 2, verse 14 says, He Himself is our peace, and the peace which He accomplished by coming and dying on the cross on behalf of both Jews and Gentiles and reconciling them into one body. So, what we see is that though the church existed in the Old Testament, it existed latently and invisibly. There were people in the Old Testament who were believers, who believed in this same message of the peace that the Messiah would accomplish. There were people who believed that message in the Old Testament and were saved individuals. And in that sense, the church was present in the Old Testament. But the church in the Old Testament was invisible. There were individual believers, but those individual believers were not organized to form a cohesive whole. They had no peculiar government to themselves, but existed for the most part within the nation state of Israel and were subject to its government. They had no peculiar forms of worship to themselves, these individual believers in the Old Testament, but they existed for the most part within the nation state of Israel and were subject to its forms of worship. Old Testament believers had nothing to distinguish them as believers from unbelievers and from the people of Israel, from unbelievers among the people of Israel. They had no basis. Old Testament unbelievers had no basis on which to separate and distinguish themselves from the unbelieving, 
from the unbelievers among the people of Israel. And believing Gentiles had no basis on which to unite with believing Jews in contradistinction to unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. The only visible demarcation in the Old Testament was that between Jews and Gentiles, believing or not. There was no visible demarcation between believers and unbelievers. There was nothing to unify and make into a cohesive whole believing Jews and Gentiles in contradistinction to unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. And so though the church was in existence already latently and invisibly in the Old Testament, it was not until through the post-resurrection announcement of the accomplishment and the nature of the peace that God accomplished at Calvary through His Son. It was not until that peace was announced, the peace between Jews and Gentiles and the peace between uh, Jews and Gentiles and God and the, the nature of this church that was being formed and the institution of this new covenant which demarcated unregenerate people from regenerate people. It was not until the New Testament institution of a peculiar church government and peculiar forms of worship belonging to the New Testament church. It was not until these announcements by the apostles and the prophets that the visible church came into existence. It was latent and invisible all along through the promises of the gospel. But this preaching of peace through, through Christ and through the apostles, and not only in a simplistic way, but in a thorough way, speaking to the nature of the church, the nature of the new covenant, so on and so forth, her worship, uh, her government, all of these things, that the church visible was formed. And Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews and Gentiles, were distinguished from unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles visibly. In simpler terms, the preaching of the peace that Christ accomplished through the cross formed the visible, the visible church. The preaching of peace articulated and defined the church's essence and destiny. That preaching of peace of Christ and the apostles articulated and defined the church's essence and destiny. And that preaching of peace invited people into the church's membership. So let's look at each of those things in turn. Essence, destiny, and invitation. Beginning with essence. Christ and His apostles preached what the essence of the church is, thereby forming her. What it is, it is a group of people who have responded to the preaching of peace. The church is a group of people who have each individually heard what Christ said through His apostles and prophets and who have responded to what Christ said through His prophets and apostles availing themselves of this peace. The church is a group of people who have shifted their confidence for reconciliation with God away from themselves and toward Christ of whom it is said that He 
reconciled us to God through the cross. Ephesians 1.16 In other words, the church is comprised of believers. Not rejectors. Believers. As Christ preached through His apostles and prophets, those who received and believed the message formed the church. This is implicit in the text. We're not to think that those who rejected Christ's preaching of peace through the apostles and prophets were those who are no longer strangers and aliens. Those who rejected Christ's preaching of peace are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Those who rejected Christ's preaching of peace are now being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That doesn't make any sense. That's implicit in the text. As Christ is preached, it is those who believe, those who receive, who form and comprise the church. And we see this even in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when Peter preaches, and those who believed are added to the church. Those day, that day was added about 2,000 souls. Right? It wasn't the unbelievers who were added, but the believers who were added. And so what the church is, what the church is, is those who believe the preaching of Christ through the apostles and prophets. In other words, those who believe what the apostles and prophets have written down for us. Those who believe this book. Those who believe this message. That is the church. So in view of this, a preacher who doesn't preach the, pre- the peace of Christ in harmony with the message of the apostles and prophets is not a truly Christian preacher. If a preacher gets up in a pulpit and doesn't preach the peace of Christ, which is implicitly everything that was described before verse 17, right? The preaching of peace in verse 17 assumes the definition of peace articulated in the few preceding verses. The peace that Christ wrought through the cross as He hung there and absorbed the penalty that sinners deserve for our sin. Bringing all of the types and shadows of the ceremonial law to fulfillment and bearing in Himself the penal sanctions of the moral law in Himself. The covenant of works, the broken covenant of works, bearing its penalty in Himself on the cross. This is what we read in Ephesians 2, Christ did at the cross. It is that peace which the apostles and prophets preached. And it is people who believe that message of peace who comprise the church. So if a preacher is not preaching that peace, he is not a Christian preacher. And if people believe something else fundamentally other than that message of peace, if their Christianity is not basically at its most elemental level a reception of that proclamation of peace, they are not Christians. And therefore those who preach other things and those who believe other things are not Christians. Where, where Christ and His peace is not preached, and where Christ and His pre- peace is not believed, you don't have Christians. And therefore, you don't have a church. 
So for example, we call it the Roman Catholic Church. But really, that's not correct. We should call it something else. The Roman Catholic Anti-Church or something. It's not the church that Christ is building. The church that Christ is building is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's built on this proclamation of peace. Christ and Him crucified for the reconciliation of sinners to God and sinners to one another. The essence of the church is people who have believed that proclamation. And the institution which continues to promulgate and proclaim that message. And so the Roman Catholic Church, for example, is not truly, technically, properly a church. As the message that they preach has departed from the apostolic message. They claim to be apostolic because their Pope supposedly is traced all the way back to Peter. But according to this passage, to be apostolic is to be apostolic in doctrine. It is to be built on the foundation of what the apostles preached. An apostolic church is a church that is built on what the apostles preached, what the prophets preached. If we are building on that foundation, we are a Christian church. We are an apostolic church. The Roman Catholic Church is not building on that foundation. They're not building on the foundation that the apostles and the prophets laid down. The message of peace through Christ Jesus as defined in Scripture, in Holy Writ. They have departed from that. But it's not just Roman Catholic churches. It's churches that call themselves Protestants. Not every church that calls itself a church is a church. Any church. Any church. And I don't care what it says on the sign. I don't care if it says Covenant Reformed Baptist Church or Trinity Reformed Baptist Church or Grace Reformed Baptist Church or such and such Presbyterian Church or such and such Reformed Church or I don't care what it says. Whatever it is. Churches of any denomination Reformed Baptists, Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, Pentecostals, Wesleyans, Nazarenes, Methodists. Listen, if you are not building your organization on the message that was preached by the apostles and the prophets, you are building on a different foundation than Christ is building His church upon. Which means whatever organization you're building, it is not a church. It's just an organization. It's not a church. The true church is built on the foundation that the apostles and prophets laid. As they spoke for Christ, the truth that they preached, which was Christ and His peace, That message called the church forth into being. As individuals believed, Christ built them together 
into the church on the foundation of that basic truth. Christ is building His church on that truth. Churches that are not building on that truth are not actually churches. This is not just a theoretical issue. This is happening all over this island. I've mentioned to many of you before, it was three or four years ago now, but I was in an Anglican church here in Barbados on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, when we celebrate that Jesus came into the world. Of all the days you would expect to hear about Jesus in a church, Christmas Eve, the guy who got up and basically gave us a stand-up comedy routine, making jokes about his Christmas ham and his family traditions and this. Listen, that so-called church is no church at all. Christ is not building that church. Christ is not taking those people in that building and building them together, as the passage in front of us says, into a holy temple for the Lord. Those people who take hold of that nonsense and call that Christianity, and that so-called priest who spews forth that bile and calls it Christianity, they are not Christians. That is not Christianity. And those are not churches. So again, hear me. This is not about denominations. Right? we got Pentecostals and Wesleyans and Nazarenes and Anglicans around the world who are Christians and who really are being built together into a holy temple where the Lord will dwell. But wherever you find people gathering and organizations being built on something other than the proclamation of peace as handed down to us by the apostles and prophets, you don't have a church and you don't have Christianity. Further, and again implicitly, the church is a group of people who take advantage of the access we have through Christ in the Spirit to the Father. We see that in verse 18. That phraseology comes from verse 18. And implicitly again, it's not just, it's not just that Christ is preached and the truth of the message is Acknowledged to be correct in a merely cerebral way. Uh, Intellectual assent is given to the correct message, the correct apostolic doctrine. Christians are not those who merely assent to intellectual propositions, propositional truths about Christianity. Christians are those who rest their souls on such truths. There's a place in Canada, Niagara Falls. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. It's it's really amazing to stand there and look at hundreds of thousands of gallons of water just pouring over and over and over in unceasing flow. It's incredible. And the 
sheer drop of the water causes so much noise and the water at the bottom is, is stirred and splashing up with such power that it doesn't even freeze even when it's minus 30 degrees. The motion, the power is incredible. And I'm not sure how far it is from the Canadian side to the American side, but we're talking, we're talking hundreds if not thousands of feet. And I'm not sure the height of the falls. But again, hundreds of feet. There was a man in the early 1900s who stretched a tightrope from the Canadian side to the American side and walked across it by himself and back and then walked across it with a wheelbarrow and back and then said, how many of you think that I could take someone in this wheelbarrow all the way across and back? And the crowds that I gathered were like, yeah, yeah, you could do it. And he said, okay, who wants to volunteer to go in the wheelbarrow? It's one thing to believe that the man can take the wheelbarrow with the person in it across and back, and it's another thing to get in the wheelbarrow. Christianity is not merely believing that Jesus came to save sinners and that He's capable of saving sinners, but Christianity is getting in the wheelbarrow and resting our souls in the truth that Christ can save sinners. So Christians... And the church is comprised of people who not merely assent to the right doctrine. The true church is not merely those who just have correct doctrine, but it is those who, in addition to believing the correct doctrine and intellectually assenting to the correct doctrine, also actually rest their souls in that doctrine and draw near to the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit, as verse 18 says. That's what Christ accomplished. Now again, there are churches gathering to do something other than to draw near to the Father through Christ by the Spirit. And maybe somewhere in some filing cabinet in the basement, there's an affirmation of true doctrine. But over time, something has happened. And now, the raison d'etre The reason for existence of these churches is something other than drawing near to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. That's not Christianity. That's not the nature of the church. Whatever you're doing, Whatever you're doing on a Sunday morning. Listen, if you're not drawing near to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, God is not with you. The presence of God is not actually among you any more than the presence of God is in hell by virtue of His omnipresence. Look where God dwells. In this passage, where is the holy temple of the Lord? Where is the dwelling place for God by the Spirit? It is among those who are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but our fellow saint, citizens with the saints and members of the household of God who are building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Those who take advantage of this access that we see in verse 18 and draw near to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. That's where the presence of God is. So I don't care how hyped your preacher is. It doesn't matter how incredible his oratory skills are. It doesn't matter what a great band you have up here. It doesn't matter if you've got a smoke machine blowing forth a glory cloud. Listen, if you are not drawing near to the Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is not among you. It doesn't matter how many people got their hands in the air. It doesn't matter how many people are shouting amen and hallelujah. It doesn't matter how many people are crying. It doesn't matter how many people have a profound emotional experience. What Christianity is, what a church is, is a collective of people who are drawing near to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, having believed intellectually the truth of the Gospel. They are resting their souls in the Gospel and drawing near to Him Lord's Day by Lord's Day to worship Him by the mediation of Christ in order that their imperfect worship might be acceptable through His priestly intercession. Asking for the help of His Spirit that they might be rid increasingly so more and more of the corrupting elements of the remaining flesh having been regenerated, but recognizing that they are still struggling against remaining corruption within themselves, they ask for the help of the Holy Spirit and draw near to to the Father through the mediation of the Son. This is what Christians are. This is what Christian churches do. And if you're not doing that, you're not a Christian. And if churches are not doing that, they're not churches. This is the essence of biblical Christianity. And lastly, from this passage, we see that the essence of the church is not only individuals who have believed and received the preaching as individuals and who have taken advantage of access to the Father as individuals and are now drawing near to the Father through the Son by the Spirit as individuals. But the essence of the church is those who have believed and received the message and taken advantage of access to the Father and been joined to others who have done the same. Because what we see here in this passage is that Christ is doing more than just saving individuals. Christ is building a church. He's building us together, this passage says, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are being joined Together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The essence of the church is 
not just a whole bunch of random individuals individually approaching God, but people who are being brought together by their common bond in Christ, doing this all together according to the New Testament direction, the preaching of the apostles and the prophets. Throughout the New Testament, you find one another's all over the place. Love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, speak the truth in love to one another, so on and so forth. You see all of these kinds of things all over the New Testament. The, the preaching of peace is a summary statement. The apostles and prophets didn't just go around just literally saying one sentence over and over. There is peace through Christ Jesus for Jews and Gentiles alike. On to the next town. There is peace through Christ Jesus for Jews and Gentiles alike. There is a depth and a richness. And there was implications and there was applications of that peace. And as they unfolded the implications and the applications of that declaration of peace, one of the implications of it was that Christians have entered a new relationship not only to God, but to one another. And that they ought to join themselves to one another and act accordingly. And so, there should therefore be a depth of relationship that characterizes us. Not only should we be believing the right doctrine, not only should we each individually be approaching the Father through the Son by the Spirit. But we should be, when we gather together, we should recognize that we're gathering together to do so. That we're we're here together to lift up our voices together to do so. Coming to church is not about me and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus, as it were. It's not about, well, what can I get out of church on Sunday? Well, I just skip it because, frankly, I feel more... Uh, inspired when I go out to the East Coast and sit in solitude on the beach. Well, never mind what you feel. God has instructed you to gather together. Right? It's not about you and your Christianity. The church is not about you and your consumeristic needs or your consumeristic desires. It's not about you just coming to church just to be filled up. What about you coming to church to be poured out? Right? Church is a collective. Church is a a cohesive group of people, not just a bunch of individuals showing up to be fed and nourished, but uh, a group of people together, raising our voices together, ministering to one another. We'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on into uh, chapter 4 eventually. But we, we, we just need to understand for now that there should be a depth of relationship that characterizes us because Christ is doing more than just getting individuals into heaven like, like cattle walking through a chute, one by one by one by one. And the turnstile goes as one uh, of the, the heads of cattle goes through and then the turnstile goes as another one goes through. This is not the way we make our way up to heaven, single file just going through the turnstile one by one. The way that we make our way up to heaven is in, in a group, in, in a caravan, in a, in a family, in a wagon, in a truck, in a bus. Together, we're going there together and we're helping one another get there together. Christ is building a church and not merely saving individuals who each make their way onward and upward on their own. So there should therefore be a depth of relationship that characterizes us. Church attendance is an obvious application. It's, it's really so basic, like, like ABCs. Church attendance is actually like one of the most basic elements of biblical Christianity. We see it so plainly in Scripture. Do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. 
Um, it's clearly a mandate. We clearly ought to be doing it. But just the very essence and the very nature of biblical Christianity is such that Christ is building a church and not merely saving individuals. Right? That, we, that we need one another. By virtue of our weakness, our frailty, and our remaining corruptions, we need one another. By virtue of the nature of the diversity of gifts in the body, we need one another. For so many reasons, like actually just coming to church to be with other Christians is actually just a really basic application. I read something um, uh, which, which struck me on, on uh, Twitter this morning. I wasn't actually planning to... Um, I didn't research this. I just happened to see it today. But a guy said on Twitter, church attendance is actually like one of the... Like all things being equal. There are exceptional circumstances and stuff. It's Twitter. So 280 characters, right? But they doubled it now. 280. But they... But... Um, he said something like this. Church attendance is actually like just one of the simplest and most basic issues of Christian obedience. And it's actually one of the few things that are actually just so easy to do. Like you actually just literally have to get up in the morning and get dressed and get there. Like it's actually just so, it's actually just so basic. Like show up. That's actually a command of scripture. Show up. (laughs) But he said, nevertheless, so many Christians don't even do this most basic issue of obedience and then they wonder why they struggle with other more complex and more difficult issues of obedience. Right? And there's this issue. What I liked about that quote is just this principle that there's just, there's, a, there's an elementary component to just basic church attendance, like ABCs. Like, if you're going to be a healthy Christian, you need to do more than attend church. But you, if you're going to be a healthy Christian, you can't not attend church. Like, that's just actually, it's just very fundamental and basic. So, it really should be, like, from everything I'm saying, just showing up should actually be a very basic, obvious application. But in our day and age, there's such an anti-church mentality. Uh, There is such a me and Jesus kind of individualized mentality that the idea of going to church seems like an optional add-on. So, I just want to highlight that point. Um... And you might say, well, it's easy for you to say, because you're the pastor, so obviously you care about church attendance uh, because you're a pastor. Right? Listen, let me just walk you through something here. All right? When I was born, they didn't write on my birth certificate, Pastor John Ritterscar. Right? I became a pastor at a certain point. And you know why I became a pastor at a certain point? Because I saw in the Scripture things like what I'm preaching you today that Christ is building a church and that it's actually so glorious that Christ is building a church, that it's such a blessing for us sinners that Christ is building a church and not just merely saving me and then wishing me luck as I go on my way to heaven on my own, but Christ has actually made provision that I might belong to a family, that I might belong to a household, that I might belong to a nation where I'm uh, ruled and governed and helped and assisted and encouraged and rebuked and challenged and so on and so forth. That's actually like, I came to see first the beauty of the church. Then I came to see the importance of being part of it. And I came to see that it was elementary for me to at least be at church. And so I, be, I became first a committed churchman before I became a pastor. Because I saw these things in Scripture. Like we need to be churchmen and we need to be churchwomen. We need to be church families. We need to give expression in our lives to the premium 
that the Scripture places upon the church. The importance that Scripture places upon the church. Christ is building the church. He's promised to be with His church in a special way. He's promised that it's going to be a primary means of edification and help to His people. So we need to be churchmen. And then finally, I became a pastor because I said, this is so important and this is so crucial that I want to give my life to this church. So that's how I got there. So when I say, you, when I say to you, you need to attend church, don't take it as like, well, obviously you're going to say that because you're the pastor. I'm a pastor because I see the importance of the church in Scripture. I'm not talking to you about the importance of the church from Scripture because I'm a pastor. So catch that. So there are people all over the island and churches all over the island that think they're Christians. But when you look at the essence of Christianity, it's not what we see here in this passage. It's the belief of a message other than the, the peace that Christ and His apostles and prophets preached. It's the reception of a message other than that. And that's not Christianity. It's doing something, it's belonging to an organization that preaches something other than that. It's gathering together with other people to do something other than draw near to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. It's something other than that. Or it's not gathering at all. And it's just looking back fondly on a day when someone prayed a prayer in some Sunday school somewhere and they consider themselves a Christian though they got no love for the brothers and make no effort to gather with God's people and be with God's people. What we got to see is that this passage is telling us something about the nature of the church, the essence of the church. And by definition, if what someone calls Christianity and what someone calls the church doesn't fit with the definition of the church that we see in Scripture, it's not the church. And therefore, it's not Christianity. So that's the essence of the church. The destiny of the church. The destiny of the church is that God would dwell among us. Look, what is the end for which we are being formed together? What is the end for which we are being joined together? In order that we might be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's a glorious end. That's a glorious destiny. And we partake of it partially now. God is here in a special way among us today, right now, as we gather here in this little building here on Pastor Road. He is with us in a special way. We have a taste of that special presence of God among us here and now. And it will only be increasingly so um, in the age to come. When we are with God face to face. When we are no longer fettered by our own sin. When we no longer walk by faith, but by sight. Right? When all of these things happen, the dwelling place of God, Revelation 21 tells us, will be with man. This is the glorious destiny of the church. Communion with God now and greater communion with God hereafter. This is a glorious, glorious destiny of the church. Now I just want you to think about, in contrast, it's not here in this passage other than implicitly, if that's the glorious destiny of the church, what's the glorious destiny of those who are not in the church? Not to have God dwell with them. Not to have God dwell among them. 
no communion with God here or hereafter. The preaching of peace gives us both the essence of the church as well as the destiny of the church. And it invites, the preaching of peace is an, is an invitation to those outside of the church to get inside the church, to be part of this glorious destiny. This is implicit in the preaching of peace. And I'm sure it was explicit in the apostles' preaching at various times and in various ways. But here in this passage, that's not, that's not necessarily explicit, but it's implicit that the preaching of peace was intended to call those who are at enmity to God to be reconciled to Him through Christ Jesus. And no longer to be outside of the church, but to be built together into with others into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So if there are those among us this morning who are not yet in the church, and I don't mean, I don't mean members here at CRBC. If you're not, you should join a, a particular local church. But if there are those who are not trusting in Christ, if there are those who have not believed this message of peace, if there are those who have not been reconciled to God, through the proclamation of peace as defined by the apostles and the prophets. If you are outside the church, come inside the church. Don't stay on the outside. Be reconciled to God. Be part of this wonderful household, this family of God. Be part of this wonderful nation of people who have been reconciled to God and are brought into new relationship with one another. Be from today, built together with brothers and sisters uh, here at CRBC and elsewhere who have also trusted in Christ Jesus into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The destiny of the church is glorious. Don't you want to be a part of that? The destiny of the church is glorious. Don't stay on the outside looking in. In conclusion, I just want to highlight this. As, a, as an encouragement for those who are already believers and those who are already, um, who already are part of God's church, the church that Christ is building, as well as for clarity for those who are presently on the outside. Look at verse 22. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I want to highlight this. Paul has already been talking about you Gentiles. And now he says, and you also. What does that mean? It means he's talking specifically in verse 22 to the Ephesian church. The local church at Ephesus. So I want to get real specific here with you as well. And I want to say this. You believers, you members here at CRBC, who belong to the church of God, who have received and believed this proclamation of peace, who are part of this organization which is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We, along with all other true gospel-believing churches, are being built together, as verse 21 says, into a holy temple in the Lord. But I want to say more than that. In Him, you also, you specific people here in this room who have rested your souls on Christ, who are part of this 
gospel-believing church, I want to bring you this encouragement. You also are being built together along with other churches elsewhere. You here are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We don't have the finest music. We don't have the finest preachers. We don't have the we don't have fog machines. We don't have we don't have a great cathedral. We're thankful for this building. I think it's real nice. I like it. But there are grander church edifices in this world. And we don't worship in one. We worship in a simple building that's humble and meets our needs. And we love it and we're thankful for it. But we don't have the pomp and circumstance that some other churches have. We don't have the pomp and circumstance that even some other churches on this island have. But we have the message of peace from the mouths of the apostles and prophets. And we have believed that message. And we are resting our souls on that message. And week by week, we are gathering to draw near to the Father through Christ by the Spirit. Which means that we also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that's an encouraging thought for a little church like us. It's a wonderful and encouraging thought. For clarity, for those who are not yet believers, who have not yet taken hold of this message of peace, there are things that might impress you about other churches here in Barbados. Nice buildings, better music, better preachers. But listen, if you, could, if, you, if you find a church that has better music than us, better preaching than us, better buildings than us, and they're building on the, the right foundation, and they got the message of peace, God bless you and go join them. <laughs> I understand. But listen, and, and I'm serious here. I'm joking around a little bit, but I'm serious here. If you're not a believer, what kind of church should you be looking to join? What sh- Back up a bit, even from that. What is a church? What is Christianity? If you're not yet a believer, don't be fooled into thinking that meeting in a grand building or meeting, uh, going to a meeting where there's impressive music, lights, fog machines, whatever. Don't be deceived into thinking that that's Christianity or that that's a church. And let me say, in all, in all seriousness, with the right kind of humility, we're not, the, we're not the only church in Barbados preaching the gospel. You should become a Christian. You should trust your soul to Christ and join a gospel-believing church. But I, but, I do want you to, but I do want to say this in all seriousness. You would do well to trust your soul to Christ and join a little church like this that meets in a simple building, that has simple worship, that preaches and teaches the Bible. This kind of church, unlike a church with pomp and circumstance but has no apostolic doctrine, this kind of church is where God's presence really is. This is the kind of church that Christ is really building. And so if you want to be part of what God's doing, if you want to have, if you want to share in that glorious destiny of God's people, communion with Him, fellowship with Him, dwelling with Him, here in part and hereafter in full, trust your soul to Christ and join yourself to a little church just like this that is being built by Christ.